Let's open up to book of Exodus, Exodus chapter one, Exodus, the second book of your, of your Bible. And again, if you don't have a copy of God's word, uh, one of our members who remain nameless uh, made them available for you. So we have pew Bibles, we don't have pews, but we have a pew Bible rack over there and uh, you can have one. If you don't have a Bible, take it, take it home. Uh, the book of Exodus is the second book in there. And I wanna ask the question tonight, what does it look like when, one, when a promise is broken? Right? What, is, what does it look like when a promise is broken? And what about a promise that's kept that looks like it's been broken? Throughout the Bible, we see many examples of how God allows promises to look broken when in reality they're actually kept. Think with me, for example, about how the disciples must have felt after the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified because he had told them that he was establishing his kingdom. And yet, why were they all gathered together after the crucifixion? Because it looked like on the pain of death, based on their association with him, a promise had been broken and they were fearful of death. Now, the promise sure looked broken, but of course it wasn't. God, through Jesus Christ, was keeping a true promise to establish a true kingdom. And in so doing, in his death, God killing uh, sin and reconciling all things to himself, things both on the earth, over the earth, under the earth, and all people to himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it look like when a promise is broken, right? but it looks broken, but it's actually kept? I imagine if each of you traced your finger along the timelines of your own life, you would see multiple chapters where it looked like a promise that God made to you was broken, and only on the other side would you realize and recognize, oh, wow, this was kept in a way even greater than I would have expected. And today we start a many months journey through a book called Exodus. And I'm calling the series, The Redeemer and the Redeemed. And I won't spend too much time talking about the composition of the book or who wrote it or when it was written. We'll get to those in subsequent sermons. But this book is all about a promise made and a promise kept. A promise made and a promise kept where things look broken uh, but they aren't really. We are in the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. It's the second part of a single book written by Moses. We have a book break here between Genesis and Exodus because when the Bible was translated by Jews into Greek from the Hebrew, they put a break here and they gave it its name, Exodus, which means a procession of people out of Egypt. In the Hebrew Bible, it's the second scene, the second chapter in a unified Torah that is thematically linked right to the book where the book drops off right at the end of the book of Genesis. It connects directly to what comes before, showing both the development and continuity of the history and identity of the people of God. Why does any of that matter? Well, let's look at our text. I'm going to read Exodus 1, 1 through 22, and I'm going to make a great deal about verses 7 and 8, and then a couple of verses later on, especially verse 17 through the end of the chapter. But let me read all of Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 through 22. Our passages won't be this long every week, but this is one unit of thought. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. 
Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all their generations. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That's the end of Genesis, right? Right? Now, look here, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest them multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemy and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's cities, Pithom and Ramses. And the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the, Egypt, the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all the kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the, Egypt, uh, the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can come to them. So God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strongly. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Our text today has three main movements, so to speak. Our text past has this past expectation and promise of blessing. Our text present has an experience of fear and oppression. And then the preserved future is on account of the action of two remarkable women. But isn't that the arc kind of our, of our own lives where if we look back on just any experience, we might experience past blessing and know it was a past blessing. God gave much growth in this season. But we're in a present season perhaps of fear and maybe sensing oppression. And then we know on the other side of that, there's future glory. Each one of us, I think, faces circumstances in our lives. We can be tempted to believe that God is not going to keep his promise. Again, my first point, if you're taking notes, is each of us face circumstances in our lives. We think God is not going to keep his promise. There's a contrasting relationship in our text today between verses 1 through 7 and verse 8. You can think of it this way. The passage 7 and 8 is like a hinge on a door where we move from blessing, experience of blessing, to present opposition. Let's look at those first seven verses because they set the scene for the whole book. Why are the people in Egypt in the first place? It's because a famine drove the descendants of Jacob into the land of Egypt where God had already prepared a place for them through the experience of opposition of Joseph, right? It's a pattern that keeps repeating through the Torah, right? It's worth repeating, the promised land is not in Egypt. This is a temporary sojourning of the people of God. Ultimately, they have to get back to the land that God promised Abraham. But even here, even in this not promised land, God prepared a place for them, a place where they would be blessed by sending Joseph ahead of them. 
That's a past experience of blessing though. Verse one through seven, they grow mightily because God prepared, again, a place for them. Listen carefully to the words of two other verses that are linked to this thematically. Listen to the words of Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Okay, file that one away. Listen to Genesis chapter nine, verse seven. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Now listen again to verse seven of Exodus one. But the people were fruitful and greatly increased. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. You see, God had been faithful to preserve Israel even outside of the land promised Abraham because one of the major themes we're gonna see in the book of Exodus is that God's promise and power are not contained within national borders. He's not just a God among gods, but he's the great I am. So what's the problem in all this blessing? What's going on? There's, you have this wonderful blessing. You see Genesis 1, 28 is being fulfilled. These people, they're growing. Genesis chapter nine, verse seven, the people are growing again. And now we're here, they're in a new land and they're growing. What's the problem? Verse eight introduces conflict. What has happened? A new king has arisen in Egypt. In the coming weeks, we're gonna spend time talking about who exactly this king might be. But king is a, great, uh, is a great translation of this particular verse, if you're curious. And we know him as Pharaoh, but the Hebrew says Melech there, king. What's important for us to know about this king is that he's actually not very important in cosmic schemes. He thinks he's important. In this moment, Moses thinks he's so unimportant that he doesn't even get named. What's important for us to know is that this king didn't know Joseph, which is to say that he didn't know what God did for Egypt through Joseph. It's kind of irrelevant that he knew who Joseph was. What's more relevant, more dangerous for the people of Israel is that he doesn't know what God did for Egypt through Joseph. The Hebrew people no longer, they don't have an advocate anymore within the king's court, and that leaves them subject to the whims of the government and open to opposition. We can be tempted in the face of, observa- of opposition to think that God is not keeping his promise. In just a moment, the Holy Spirit's gonna shine a light on two remarkable women who did not doubt that God was, would keep his promise. But I wanna highlight this temptation that I think consumes a lot of dear Christians. Oftentimes we expect God's ordinary pattern of promise keeping to be smooth sailing, to be clear, clarity all the way and strength. And why do we assume that? I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily, but I think it's because it's how you and I want promises kept. We expect when someone makes a promise to us that it will be carried out in the terms that we have all agreed upon. You're gonna pay me this money, I'm gonna loan you this money for you to get a car repair, and then on the other side of this, you're gonna give me money back, and we all understand clearly the time this is gonna happen. We're just in exactly the content of the blessing or of the promise, and we understand exactly when it will be fulfilled. Right, we expect that. But on this passage, there's a commentator, his name's David Murray. He's a pastor, he actually preached sermons through this. He points out that God regularly keeps his promises through surprise, opposition, and weakness. Think back through the cross. Surprise, opposition, and weakness. If you had a chance to ask David Murray, why does God keep 
his promise through surprise, opposition, and weakness. David Murray will answer to train you to look to Christ, who took the low route to glory, who took the hard way to reward and the empty life for exaltation, to teach us again to look for Christ. Which takes me to my next point, right? Which is we all have to seek to know the Lord. Let's first look at Pharaoh. You see this new king who's coming onto the scene, he had an obligation to inquire, who are all these people and why are they here? He should have been humble enough to ask, why are all these sons of Israel in Goshen and why have they filled the land? Others did, others did. Compare this king, for example, with Cyrus II, right? Also known as Cyrus the Great. In his first year, in his first year, he figured out who the people were and he not only allowed them to leave, but he financed them to return and he financed the construction of their temple because he knew who their Lord was. He thought to ask, This new Egyptian king, however, is totally uninterested in why these people are in his land. He's not even like his prior pharaohs, who when Abraham was there, feared the Lord enough that they let Abraham get out of there, lest the judgment of God fall then. This pharaoh, this unnamed pharaoh, has a lot of hubris. We'll come to see that in the future. He's a lot of hubris. He's totally uninterested which also makes him a very bad government official. Verse 10, come let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and if war breaks out, join their enemies and fight against us. In a few weeks, we'll be discussing the hardness and softening of Pharaoh's heart. May I suggest to you that it's right here in this text that the Egyptian king has charted his course? God certainly has a purpose in what he's doing. But the Egyptian king right here charts his course by saying, I'm not even interested in what the Lord might be doing here. This Pharaoh sees the creative intent of God to see an increase, a multiplication in the land. And what's his fear? Lest they multiply, let's oppress. He's self-preserving. He believes that by micromanaging the details of his life, he can secure his rule and reign in land. I know not one of us thinks that we can micromanage our lives and make sure we're okay. We don't do that. Now let's turn our attention briefly to two women that Moses contrasts with this Pharaoh, Shipra and Pua. We'll talk more about them in a minute, but the text says, the text says that they feared God. Verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king commanded. We'll talk more about the fear that they have in a moment. But if you think about what one fears versus the other, Pharaoh fears a threat to his rule and reign, and the women fear the Lord. uh, They fear God. They fear God. This bitter providence he's about to lay on his people, our bitter providences are designed to drive us to the promises of God. They're designed to drive us to the promises of God. Pharaoh falls right in line with all those before him who oppose God's rule and reign and their own plans, and he is intending on charting his own course. The details of verse 10 here are really important for us. When he is faced with God's creative plan for the nation of Israel, he uses an interesting turn of phrase. It sounds a lot like the last time we heard the people were fruitful and multiplied and were going to go abroad. He he uses a very interesting phrase which shows 
right? Who he's like. Listen carefully to the words in Genesis chapter 11. You remember Genesis 11, people get together and they build a tower. Listen to what these people who align themselves against God's purpose to fill the earth with his glory. Genesis 11, three and four, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had bricks for mortar, bitumen for, uh, excuse me, brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build a city for ourselves and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, let we, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Come, let us, lest they escape the land. Verse 10, come, let us, lest they escape the land. In Hebrew, go out from the land. In Hebrew, lest they exodus. Who's the first person to prophesy the exodus? Commentator, Old Testament commentator, Victor Hamilton highlights a great irony. Pharaoh is the first person to prophesy the exodus. Of course, God has a creative purpose he's trying to accomplish. He's gonna bring the people back to the promised land, but it's Pharaoh's fear here. It's his desire to micromanage and control every detail of his life that causes him to oppress the people, which God then uses to bring about the exodus. He's afraid the people will leave and in his fear creates the conditions in which they do leave. This unremarkable, unnamed Pharaoh is motivated by fear. He has a desire to consolidate his rule. And just like those of Babel, he has the people do what? Build cities. He doesn't build cities. He isn't named here on purpose because he wants to make a name for himself in building cities. So Moses doesn't give it to him. We don't know this guy's name. We can guess based on the cities and I'll talk about it in future weeks. But there's an irony here. The more pressure that Pharaoh puts on the people, verse 12 tells us, the Hebrews multiply and they spread abroad even more. It's the irony. So let me make this observation here, if I, if I can. From an individual level, the experience of the Israelite moves from worse to worse. They move from hard labor to forced labor. And God will eventually forbid the type of labor they experience in Egypt is forbidden in Torah in Leviticus 25. It's so bad, God says, do not do this to other people. Yet again, the harder Pharaoh presses, the more God blesses. I didn't even mean for that to happen, but it just did. Oftentimes, the bitter cup is the one God uses to bring about the deliverance of his people. We don't know why the Hebrews hadn't left yet at this point. We're not told by the text why they haven't left to go back to the promised land. And we don't know why the Hebrews hadn't done that, but God was using this experience to bring an end to themselves so that they would rely on God and go to God's promises. Have you been brought to an end of yourself ever in the history of your life? Yes, probably. Do you go to the promises of God? The bitter cup is often the one that God uses to bring about the deliverance of his people. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this idea. He once said, quote, I have learned to kiss the wave which throws me against the rock of ages. I learned to kiss the wave that threw me against the rock of ages. Have you in your life learned to kiss the wave? Israel would be blessed through their trial even though the individual temporal experience was hard. 
And that brings us now to two heroines, Shipra and Pua. These, unlike our unremarkable unnamed Pharaoh, are two remarkable named women. Please note, by the way, Pharaoh is not named because Exodus is not Pharaoh's story. And yet God's spirit highlights these two women's name because he uses what the world sees as insignificant to accomplish his extraordinary ends. The world might look at these two Hebrew midwives and think nothing special is going to happen through these two women. And in a worldly sense, you might think everything is going to happen through the government, through this Pharaoh. Because we might organize our lives that way. We probably do organize our anticipations and hope that way. But in the Lord's economy, he's pleased to use the most insignificant things to accomplish his extraordinary ends. So we have an unnamed Pharaoh who has monuments built in his honor, and we don't even know his name. His record is lost to history. But we have two midwives who we will know their names forever. It's remarkable. Never doubt, Christian, that your small acts of disobedience to the world and faithfulness to God are insignificant. Don't ever doubt that your small disobedience to the world and your obedience to Christ is insignificant. They could be the fulcrum of an entire generation's faithfulness to Christ, to an entire generation's legacy of faith. Their faithfulness, these women's faithfulness, opens up a future hope for more generations. These women are among people who are overworked, enslaved, and oppressed. And some commentators talk about the Hebrew, that these women themselves, their experience of running back and forth is one of hard labor. There's a lot of puns in the Hebrew that's happening here. The, the workers are being oppressed with hard labor, and these midwives are striving to get to all these people to deliver all these babies. But there are two fears that I really want to hone in and contrast today. Let's contrast the fear of these women with these fear, this fear of Pharaoh. Again, the exceptional growth of the Hebrews that we see in the text should have driven Pharaoh to ask, why are these people, the more I press them, why are they still more blessed? Why are they still more blessed? Instead, he continues to fear them as a threat to his rule and reign. Look again at verse 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. You are supposed to be horrified by that command. Pharaoh wanted to eliminate the men who could rise up and challenge him. Later, he's going to suggest to Moses that he leaves only with the men. So the motivations could be manifold, right? We don't exactly know his motivations. We can surmise and guess a lot of things. What is clear, though, is that the birth stool is the place of labor, and what Pharaoh is commanding is infanticide. Pharaoh reveals his true colors here in this decree. Pharaoh is not innocent. So again, in the conversation, who hardened whose heart? Before there's any conversation about that, Pharaoh has charted his course. He has set his path, and he set it squarely against the creative intention of God. He's so fearful of the future that he wants to eradicate it. He's so selfish in his authority that he thinks he has the right to say who lives and who dies. My nation, my choice, Pharaoh says. We, we might assume the value of human life is assumed by all cultures in all places, 
because it motivates both sides of our current discussions about the right to life of infants and of children, and now elderly people infirmed. We live in a precarious age, however, where Pharaoh's diabolical logic is becoming increasingly more common. And we should not assume that our neighbors have value-neutral opinions anymore about this matter. Nietzsche observed this acutely. Christian ethic without a Christian theology is impossible, and only people who fear the Lord will act accordingly. Eventually, people believe that there are no, if people believe there are no consequences for the violation of biblical ethics, then uh, things will collapse into violence just like they do here. But Shipra and Pua have a correct fear. They don't fear the future. They don't fear a threat to their rule or reign. They fear the Lord. Earlier in Genesis, Abraham decided that he would lie about Sarah because verse 11 of chapter 20 says, there's no fear of God in this place. And Abraham thought they would kill him on account of his wife, Genesis 20, 11. God has not revealed his covenant name to these women yet. He, he hasn't revealed his name as Yahweh, right? Or the I am, I am that I am. The Hebrew text just says Elohim, like I'm God. So as far as we know, they've not received any divine instruction. They've not had a divine encounter we don't really know how they know to fear the Lord other than probably they've heard the stories over and over again about what Joseph did through or what Joseph did for the people of Egypt. And their faithfulness serves as another point of evidence of what Romans 1 talks about that we don't have to have divine encounters to see the attributes of God clearly. It's obviously wrong what Pharaoh wants to do and rather than suppressing the truth these women do what they know to be right without consequence. Sisters, these women are heroes you should emulate. Name your daughters Pua. Probably not a good idea for the playground, but the spirit of Pua must live on, right? Opposition presents us with an option to lean into the promises of God. Opposition presents us with an opportunity to lean into the promises of God. Of course, Pharaoh doesn't let they're just letting these boys live, go. He's not fine with it. What does he do in verse 18 through 29? He summons these women to himself. He says, why have you done this thing? And these women have a remarkable answer. They are true heroines worthy of emulation, right? They, they, we're not exactly sure if they're lying to Pharaoh or if they're making fun of Pharaoh or making fun of the Egyptians. But what they say is, the women are too strong, and they give birth before we can get there. I've never been in labor, but I've watched people be in labor, and I don't know how anyone could do it alone. But these midwives are saying, we're just not there when it happens. We can't do anything about it. Whether they're not showing up or they're showing up and not telling, it seems based on the grammar that they're not actually able to get there. But it might be they're just outside the door, and they come in right at the last minute or something. Kind of like OBGYN does nowadays. Like he's just there for the five minutes at the very end. The woman answers that they've neither abated or aborted a single Hebrew baby. And the text throws a bit of shade at the Egyptians by implying they're not as strong in labor. It takes advantage of what we might assume is some of Pharaoh's perhaps lack of familiarity with labor and birth. He probably lived a very sanitized life and didn't exactly know how all of it works. He's like, okay, whatever. Uh, there's a couple of times in Genesis where women also do this. Uh, you might remember uh, 
Rebecca does this with her father as well. These women do not act righteously with the expectation that God will bless them. That's a question. They don't know. They don't know what's on the other side of this, but they know the right thing to do and they do it anyways, whether God blesses or whether he doesn't. It makes me think of three other Hebrews, right? Who we don't know if God will bless us on the other end of this, but whether it's right to obey you or to obey God, we will obey the Lord, right? Based on the Hebrew grammar, we can assume they did this spontaneously and in defiance to a tyrant. It's like, we won't do this. And God blesses them by giving them families. But again, the harder Pharaoh presses, the more God blesses the Hebrews. This again is a moment Pharaoh could have turned back. But instead of turning back here, he then elevates the command. He tells the whole nation, any Hebrew boy, throw him into the Nile River. The Nile for the Egyptians is this godlike, life-giving force. And Pharaoh, in order to save his nation, to give life to his nation, he wants to turn it into a place of death for the Hebrews. Water is a central feature in the book of Exodus. And because of this moment, because of this moment right here and what's going to happen later in the book of Exodus, water becomes a central feature in Jewish and Christian symbolism to this day. Ironically, one Hebrew woman is going to put her baby boy into the water. And that baby boy is going to live. And that baby boy is going to secure the deliverance of the Egyptian or of the uh, of the. Hebrew people out of Egypt uh, on account of this. Uh, there's just so much. Exodus is just pregnant with these typological connections and foreshadows for the gospel. Because Jesus Christ himself, just like this baby boy Moses who will be laid down into the Nile, will take death upon himself in his crucifixion and be raised from the dead, put down in the water, taken back up, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. You see, Moses had been drawn up from a place intended for death to lead a people to a place where they could worship their God. Jesus Christ laid to death, raised to bring his people to a place of worship and rest. Jesus coming up from the grave opens up for us a way for all men and all women everywhere who would believe in him to be reconciled to God, to enter a permanent rest and glad worship. If you find yourself striving to be good enough today, believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus did the work to give you this life. Throw yourself on him and receive the promise of God, this promise of grace. You can tell the person sitting next to you right now, they'll be very glad to tell you more about Jesus. God has a creative purpose in this trial and these trials that we face, these small opportunities for faithfulness to his promise in the book of Exodus over and over and over again we see an honest evaluation of what the world is really like. This is what the world is really like. People do good things and bad people continue to oppress them in their exercising and doing of good things. This is what the world is really like and Exodus tells the truth about the world. We both see the creative design of God and the opposition the world has for that design. I want to be clear on this. This isn't some yin and yang relationship where God is trying to fight the balance, the force in the universe. God has no rivals. He, he forbears people like Pharaoh because he's patient. He's wanting all to come to repentance, even Pharaoh. And he's happy, though, to use their rebellion to accomplish his greater purposes. 
Here, though, we see themes which are going to be present throughout the Bible that we're going to highlight over and over in the book of Exodus. God will save through judgment. He will part the Red Sea. The people walk through like on dry ground, and then he'll close the Red Sea over the Egyptians, smothering them. He will use seemingly insignificant people and accomplish extraordinary ends. That same God has a creative purpose for your trials in which you're working. Small, perhaps, opportunities that you might have for faithfulness in belief of God's promises. Tragically, it's not outside the realm of possibility that you might have to, in this life, now stand for the vulnerable, both infants and elderly, sick, in our culture of death. That might be one of these opportunities. Maybe you do have a midwife moment. It's possible now. But more likely, the small opportunities are going to look like small opportunities for faithfulness, teaching the next generation the promises of God, family worship, extending hospitality to visitors, being very generous and cooking great food so we can show people the love of God, John 13, 35, giving generously of your time, energy, and talents to see the kingdom of God advance, reading your Bible to your nieces and nephews at dinner, These are these small opportunities for faithfulness and these grand schemes of what seem like unassailable powers. Who are these midwives to Pharaoh? Right? That's to Pharaoh, nobody. But to, to the midwives, who is Pharaoh? He's the keeper of life and death. And yet they're small opportunities for faithfulness in the face of unbelievable observation of opposition. Allow God right? Through them, he's pleased to work through these seemingly insignificant women to accomplish unbelievable ends. You might seem like your small acts of faithfulness in the face of extraordinary odds. Can me bringing dinner to church potluck really matter? I don't know, but let me tell you a testimony, right? People bought me a Bible one day and gave it to me, and it changed the course of my life. A $25 book from Lifeway, when we used to have those, change the course of my, what's $25? Nothing, right? Change the course of my life. These small opportunities for faithfulness in the face of life circumstances might cause you to doubt God's faithfulness, but they are actually fulcrums on which God's entire plan on reconciling the world to himself turn. Your small acts of faithfulness are that fulcrum upon which God is reconciling the world turns. So don't doubt the little opportunities of faithfulness that you have. You might feel as insignificant as two Hebrew midwives in this grand scheme of whatever is happening, but God is pleased to use people who think, what do I have to offer? Those are his favorite people to use. Will you pray with me? Lord, we're grateful for the reminder that you work through small and significant things, including ourselves. And uh, Lord, as we take the supper to remember that and to remember your work of redemption and and bringing us into communion with yourself, Lord. We think of ourselves, what are we that you're mindful of us? Psalm 8, what is man that you care for us? But not just men in general, but who is Zach Carter? Who, Who are these individual people? They're people, Lord, your word says you've set your sights on, that you know how many hairs are on their head. You know when they rise, you know when they sleep. They matter to you, Lord. We're grateful for Jesus Christ, what he's done for us. 
We ask, Lord, as we move this time of the supper, that you would teach us again and again and again, Lord, how much grace you've given us in Christ and what what a remarkable inheritance that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all this in his name. Amen.